to Ethics in the Naval Warrior. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Today, we have part two of a very interesting conversation with Mark Levecki, the 1958 Research Fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Mark, last time we talked about Jonathan Shea and his ideas around moral injury, and you really were hitting on just war. So I want to see the balance between those two. Can you bring us up to date on what moral injury is all about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you say, it's a it's a understanding of mental trauma that comes out of Jonathan Shea's work with Vietnam era combat veterans, uh, and it basically says there. I had noted that there's a couple different definitions of it. One has to do with this, uh, experiencing a sense of betrayal by a pos- somebody in a position of authority in a high stakes situation, and that's the that's the definition that Shea primarily used. There's a second definition, which is the one that I've primarily employed, which says that a moral injury is a kind of psychic wound that comes from doing or allowing to be done something that goes against a deeply held moral conviction. And the pivot point between it and just war then is, uh, as in any war, uh, one of the metrics for success is killing the enemy in combat. Many young people grow up, particularly in the West, uh, both within and outside religious traditions, believing that killing is itself morally wrong, almost full stop, with the one caveat that there are occasions in which it is necessary to kill, as in a justified war. Uh, The problem with that is it makes the business of warfighting, by definition, morally injurious because you are doing something that goes against a deeply held moral conviction, whether you're supposed to do it or not. Um, And there is a connection that has been made between having killed in combat and moral injury and a connection that has been made between moral injury and soldier suicide. So warfighters are leaving the combat zone. Uh, and dying by their own hands uh, long after combat has ended because of this thing called moral injury. Now, let me let me jump on a couple of the things you said, uh, and I'd, I'd ask you to kind of uh, highlight them a little bit. There's going to be physical injury. There's going to be psychological or moral injury, no matter if it's, I hate to say it this way, the good war or the bad war, right? Correct. Let me jump into what that war is. You you talked about witnessing an act, and you talked about doing an act. And I know there's controversy within this space about which of those are moral injury. You want to highlight that a little bit? Yeah, very good. That's that's actually, I think, essential. Um, I've done some some good work with uh, an old Stockdale Center friend uh, named Timothy Mallard, who's a colonel in the United States Army, and he's presently the command chaplain for U.S. Army Europe. And he has made an important distinction between moral injury and what he wants to call a spiritual injury or a spiritual wound. And it's much more than semantics. What he's trying to get after is precisely what you're touching on, that a moral injury is something that comes from what I have done. I have uh, transgressed a moral norm. However, there are a lot of people who are being diagnosed with moral injury following having something done to them. Maybe they were uh, abused as a child. Uh, maybe in the profession of arms, maybe it's a warrior downrange who gets sexually assaulted um, you know, by a, posi- a person in authority over them. Both of these conditions, these psychic traumas that occur from these, these episodes, are being called moral injury. Uh, and 
for Chaplain Mallard, this can be a crisis because if a moral injury is doing or allowing to be done something that goes against a deeply held moral norm, and I've just been sexually assaulted and I am now suffering a moral injury, I, I may put uh, a burden of unnecessary guilt on myself. So he differentiates the two. A spiritual wound for him is the kind of psychic trauma that you experience because somebody else has betrayed a moral norm. So he makes that important distinction. Just to be clear, also, this is not PTSD. It's different. Uh, there, there's guilt. There's loss of trust. There's a sense of betrayal. That's right. Post, post-traumatic stress disorder could obviously also come uh, from having uh, traumatic events done to you. Uh, it usually manifests, at least in the clinical expressions, it usually manifests in hypervigilance, paranoia, uh, that sort of thing. When it manifests in shame uh, or a sense of betrayal, then it's usually classified as a moral injury. All right. Let me pivot on that and say, what is warfare nowadays? Um, you know, I'm an old Marine, so I, I would assume charging up a hill with a bayonet is the classic warfare, at least in the last century. Nowadays, we have drones. We have tomahawks that can fly hundreds of miles with a press of a button. Do I have to pull a trigger? Do I have to see someone's eyes in combat? Or can I be a victim of moral injury by pressing a button to continents removed? Yeah. Great question. Uh, and sadly, the answer is yes. I know another chaplain who has worked at the U.S. Cyber Center for Excellence, uh, working with people who are involved in cyber operations. And uh, such operations can go kinetic. There can be killing people and breaking things. And those operators have been seen to show rates of moral injury that are not substantially different from those who are at the pointy end of the spear uh, with their boots on the ground downrange. Uh, I think you see the same thing in RPA and in remote piloted aircraft pilots, um, especially with them, that the, the distance is a little bit misleading. They may be two continents away, but with the imagery we have nowadays, their ability to access uh, very clearly uh, the grim business of what they're doing is, is potentially even more enhanced than a lot of ground personnel. You know, they, they observe these guys for periods of time to identify uh, or to confirm their identity, figure out their patterns of behavior. Maybe eventually they pull the trigger. They watch the kill shot. Uh, they may watch the person bleed out. Then they, they stay on, on target and they observe who comes uh, to mourn, uh, to retrieve the body. Sometimes they'll, you know, they'll go all the way to the funeral and try to identify the different people that are involved in it and you know, gathering further intelligence. That's a level of intimacy that is uh, grimly exquisite. You know, It makes very plain to them what it is that they are doing. Those are fairly aggressive words. You've got, you've got this book coming out later this year, The Good Kill. Let me, let me ask about that in this way. I heard you say, at least in the Western tradition, that it could be someone with a religious background or not with a religious background. Do you have to have a religious foundation, a, a, a traditional religious foundation to suffer from a moral injury? It, it seems not. It seems that uh, you know, people recognize, uh, and I, I suppose I, sh I should stop here and, and, and backstep just a bit. Any prescription I have for attempting to avoid or to overcome a moral injury is not to try to suggest that the business of war fighting 
uh, is not morally weighty. People recognize, even in the people that we may hate, we tend to recognize a kind of equal dignity. We recognize that killing another human being, however justified, is grim business. Uh, and that ought to provoke a response in us. It is a grief to find oneself in a position of having to kill. My assertion, however, is that grief is not necessarily guilt. Uh, and the just war tradition recognizes that killing comes in different kinds. There's murder. We ought never to do that, period, full stop. Uh, there's those kinds of kills that are accidental, completely unintended. And there may be varying degrees of culpability. Maybe we ought to have known better or you know, tried harder or been more careful, but they're essentially morally neutral. There's a third kind of kill that is allowable in certain circumstances, even obligatory. And that's not to reduce the gravity of the act, but it is to assert that there are times where however much we may not want to have to harm somebody, our adversaries, our enemies have a vote. And while we are always supposed to respect another person's dignity, even our enemies, or in religious language, while we're always supposed to love our neighbor, there are times where one neighbor is unjustly kicking in the face of another neighbor. And in those times, we cannot love both neighbors in exactly the same way, in exactly the same moment. And sometimes, depending on the gravity of the situation, uh, we have to make a kill. And that should always be morally weighty. And I, I, I hope that our nation's warfighters always recognize uh, the weight of their task, however justified. You can grasp the weight of that task, whether you go to church, mosque, synagogue, or temple, or not. I think it's, I think it's part of uh, what it means to be a human being. But let me ask you this. What happens if there's no guilt, if there's no remorse? What is that? Right. So that, that could be a couple things, right? I mean, there, there are some people in this world, history has shown us, that are so morally reprehensible that their deaths seem not to amount to any kind of a loss, but to a net moral gain for the, you know, for the world. You can think of your Hitlers, your Pol Pots, what have you. Uh, so in certain situations, it's, it's easier to recognize the justice of a kill. And that just seems to me in a sort of common moral sense. So it could be that. It could be the recognition that what I'm doing is so clearly morally appropriate, you know, because of lives saved, because of evils averted, that sort of thing, uh, that this feeling of grief doesn't really come into it. I think this is a complicated feeling. Maybe you're celebrating the fact that you killed, but more than likely you're, you're celebrating something like the fact that you've ended a threat. And you could probably work those things out and find the nuance and move on. But then there would be another kind of absence of grief that I think would be problematic. Warfighters have to develop a thick skin. That's to say they, they have to develop a kind of callousness in order to be able to do what they do. Uh, and this isn't just uh, a burden on warfighters. Doctors do this. My brother is a firefighter paramedic up in Spokane, Washington. Uh, you do a ride along with him and they behave and speak in sometimes fairly callous ways. But it's simply a part of distancing that is sometimes necessary to be able to do difficult tasks. But when this callousness has gotten so thick 
that we no longer feel these human emotions or the weight of what we're doing, maybe in our downtime, maybe, you know, after action when we're able to process what's gone on. That kind of moral numbness, that kind of moral deadness is a danger. Obviously, it makes, you know, abuse and the committing of atrocities easier, more likely. It wrecks relationships, uh, you know, the, the loss of the ability to feel empathy. All of these things are dangers. Dr. Levecki, I will look forward to your book coming out. Thank you for joining us on Ethics in the Neville Warrior. Absolute privilege. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Ethics in the Naval Warrior, produced by the Boeing Leadership Innovation Lab at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. You can find more of our podcasts by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu.